as hyped as it was, mm. machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to like fundamentally change, I think, how we, uh, how, how the industry values data. Yeah. I think like ML and AI is probably going to become table stakes for like a lot of new businesses, maybe not all of them, but essentially a significant amount. And in that world where we're, where we're making, where some, where some automated system is making a decision, yeah. especially when that decision ha like impacts someone in, in real life, like in the, in the medical space, in the freight space, right. I anything in the automotive space, then that, that is where like the, the, the data is going to become critical. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there starts to become regulation around, um, you know, how, in fact, I'm almost, I'm almost positive that it's coming. Um, like how, how, how we treat data that's feeding into these models, how we audit, how, how we, you know, that, uh, that's stuff. the, that's the biggest thing, you know, when it comes to AI and ML, the biggest bottleneck we've seen is the actual data governance associated with the, the data prep that's required to make sure that the decisions that are being made, whether it's by a human or a machine is being made off of data that's been persisted is accurate. Mm -hmm. And that's usually where companies are struggling right now. I think as we get through this, you know, this is you know, one of the biggest reasons why we're so passionate about our mission at Coalesce is to help make that data prep process as efficient as possible and get to that point where you've got the appropriate lineage, appropriate documentation. So then you can get to this new era of AI and ML and being able to actually make decisions autonomously because you know the data is accurate, it's secure, it's exactly what you need. Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Coalesce, a monthly podcast about all things data and the trends in technology transforming our industry. I'm Armand Petrosian, CEO of Coalesce, and here with me is my co-founder and CTO, Satish Jayanti. Together, we'll be your host for the next hour. I'm super excited about having Chad as a guest. We got two people way smarter than me with Satish and Chad himself. Um, you know, coming into the new year, obviously you see some of the decorations here at my house. Uh, we thought it'd be really fun before the holidays to forecast and talk about what we feel are going to be the biggest trends in data engineering for 2023. Who better to discuss this than Chad Sanderson himself? I think Chad, you've done a great job at bringing this concept of data contracts to the topic of everybody's brain. Uh, I think we should just jump right into it since I feel like everybody that's on that knows you probably wants to hear about that. Um, I know Satish has got some questions around that. I've got some questions around that. So just to start, for everybody to understand, what is data contracts? How would you describe data contracts? Yeah, um, so I would describe data contracts as agreements between data producers and data consumers that specify what is the data that should be emitted from some source system. It could be a production source. It could be a table and a warehouse. It could be a third party tool. If you have the capacity to, uh, for producers to make changes there, um, it lays out the data itself, the schema, the SLAs, business semantics, and other aspects of the data. It's very similar to an API. Mm -hmm. And there's some level of enforcement that ensures that those constraints are actually followed. And if they don't, 
then we try to shift left as much as we possibly can so that ownership is actually on the producer instead of downstream consumers trying to write a bunch of filters in the data warehouse itself to catch bad data. So I remember we caught up about this maybe a week or two ago, and I would love to hear how you stumbled upon this internally at your company. Uh, what, what problem did you see happening that, that really led you to this conclusion? Yeah. So there, there was a few things that led us to data contracts. Um, so I, I came into Convoy to initially run their experimentation and machine learning uh, infrastructure team. Cool. And then from there, I expanded out into the uh, more on the data engineering sort of uh, big data infrastructure side of the house as well, mainly because there were a, a huge amount of problems. And I realized that there, there were a huge amount of problems with our sort of machine learning infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I realized I couldn't fix them by, by hyper-focusing on the actual ML tools themselves. Like I had to move into the actual big data infrastructure. Yep. And when I did that, um, what I saw was, despite the fact that we were using the sort of quote unquote uh, modern data stack, right? We had we had all the tools that everybody loves to talk about, the Fivetran and Snowflake, and we were using Debezium for CDC and DBT and Airflow and yada yada yada. Um, pretty much everyone that was actually consuming the data was extremely unhappy with the state of our of our data warehouse, which I put into quotation marks. Um, we had critical pipelines that were breaking on a regular basis. We had very little clear ownership, like mm-hmm. massive tables that had evolved over a period of years and years and years. And if those tables failed, uh, if there were like regressions or whatever, there really wasn't a point of contact to come in and say like, hey, I, like, I own this. I will fix it. Here's the SLA that I'm under contract for. And then we experienced the same problem on the engineering side. So Convoy did a pretty massive amount of database replication. Mm-hmm. And most of the software engineers that were responsible for maintaining those databases had no clue what was actually happening to that data uh, after it entered Snowflake. It was just a black box. Mm-hmm. And so that meant that they were regularly making changes for their transactional use cases without thinking about how the, these like downstream data products were, would, would potentially be impacted. And that was everything from like schema changes, which admittedly were a little bit more rare, but they like when they did happen, it was it was massively problematic. To more subtle things like changing business logic uh, of a column, like we have a column called shipment distance, and we switch from miles to kilometers. Right? It's not a schema breaking change, but it still is extremely problematic for everybody like consuming that column. Um, so we realized that this this was sort of our our core issue. If we could establish ownership. Um, and we could establish like some form of contract between a producer and a consumer, uh, then we could actually create a, a collaboration system where these two sides are talking to each other about the data. And we don't, they, they don't have to go through the data engineering team for every single ask or every single bug that comes up. Um, and that's, that's what I was sort of trying to, to avoid, was having the data engineering team be the bottleneck for all like data quality in the company. Yep. That makes sense. I, I, you know, both the teaching, I've worked with so many different companies and it's so common to see the lack of collaboration from the data consumers and the data producers. And so when I was talking to you about this, I was excited because it's a way to enforce that that happens, or at least that there's clear ownership for specific data products, objects, however you want to 
call them to make sure that there's actual governance being enforced when you're going through analytics processes, when you're making changes, when you want to see the impact that a change might have. And so it makes total sense to me, Satish, I'm not sure if you have any other questions or if the audience has any questions. And by the mm -hmm. way, for anybody that's in on this live stream, if there's topics that you want us to talk about, feel free to throw a comment in, uh, ask questions to Chad, Satish, myself, mm -hmm. happy to answer them while we're on live. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Satish, what, what are your thoughts, man? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, data contract is, is a great term. I, I love the <clears> term. Um, now, my, you know, I had some experience working with uh, APIs in the past where, you know, we were trying to monetize data and then, you know, you publish this API to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're responsible to maintain and make sure that those APIs would function regardless of what happens behind the scenes. Right. So making sure that the APIs are versioned and they are downward compatible and all of that. So is that something what a data contract is in? Is there any difference between an API and a data contract? Uh, or is this just a, a fresh name? No. I would say that there is the APIs, uh, the, the contracts are extensions of what we think of as like traditional um, or software engineering centric APIs. There are some elements of the data or some, some elements of a data centric API that are found in a contract that may not be found in like, you know, some, some like typical REST API or something like that. So for example, not only do you care about the schema, but you also care about things like semantics. So, or cardinality is one clear example. Like if you have an entity or, you know, a dimensional table, how does that entity relate to some other entity that's meaningful for you? So in Convoy's case, there is a many to one relationship between shipments and shippers, meaning you could never have one shipment that belonged to two shippers. And if that, data ever came over the wire. So if you ever saw a shipment, you know, one, two, three, um, being tagged to both shipper ABC and EFG, that's like a big problem. And it's something that generally, uh, software engineers are, are not really thinking about when, when it comes to, um, API management. Um, and there's, there's sort of a whole host of things that are like that falling in that same sort of category, data specific, um, use cases. The other thing is that my perspective uh, is, is that data contracts are uh, bi-directional and it starts from the consumer. So they are consumer driven. A few reasons, let me, I'll explain quickly what I mean by that. Um, there's actually a, um, a, a non-trivial number of companies that have some sort of schema evolution, schema management framework. Google, Uber, Airbnb, and, and generally what happens is there's some rule or some process at the company and they'll say like, Hey, you know, software engineer, if you want to make some data available in your data platform of choice, then you have to register this schema with some, whatever, like some, some registry, uh, that creates a couple issues. The first issue is exactly as you say, there's a lot of work on the data producer to then like take ownership and, and maintain all of these schemas. Mm -hmm. And they have no idea if this adds any downstream business value, like at all, right? The data could just be going into the ether. It could never get used. It could get used for something uh, for like two days and then never get used. It could go into like some orphan table. It could go into some dashboard that a product manager looks at once a week. It's like, well, is that really 
worth it? Like, is, is the ROI there to go through all this like maintenance and sort of re registration? So that, that that's one issue. Hey, hey Chad, one mm. question we got from the audience from Bruno was asking what we mean by data producers. Oh, sure. From, from my perspective, it's anybody who's actually dealing with the preparation of that data before somebody on the business side is driving insight from it, whether it's through a dashboard or something like that. Exactly. That's, and that, and we would call those people, the ones that are driving that insight, the consumers, correct? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. So there, so, so where contracts are to sort of deviate slightly to answer that question, where contracts are really effective is where, you know, the producer and the consumer have some tangible relationship. So like if you have a software engineer who owns a, a, a database that's generating some like internal, like first party data, that's a data producer, a consumer is like a data scientist, analyst, data engineer, whoever is deriving value from that. They, mm -hmm. they need to talk to each other. Um, but there, there are other examples. So like if you have Salesforce and you have like some manual data entry, like that person is, is, a, is a data producer, right? Like they're, they're generating some data. They're usually deciding the schema within Salesforce and there's a consumer of that. So um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the primary use case. Um, anyway, to, to quickly, quickly shift back and then I'll, and then I'll shut up. Um, is that, uh, so to answer Satish's uh, question on sort of how is this different from APIs, um, is it, 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 it's really hard for producers to be the ones that are responsible for determining what is in that API and for generating it and, and being accountable for it all on their own. Um, and then, and the, and the second re main reason this is hard is because they don't, they don't know the, the use cases and because they don't know, know the use cases, they sort of don't know all the semantic like what is semantically meaningful about the data? Uh, mm -hmm. They just don't have that context. Um, so in my opinion, the contract actually has to be generated by the consumer. The consumer has to say, this is the data that I, I, is useful for me. Here's, this, here's what I believe the semantics actually need to be. Here is where I, how, when I need the data, how frequently it needs to be refreshed um, and any other SLA around it. And then the software engineer essentially signs off on that and says like, okay, this makes sense. I understand the use case. I get that it's valuable. I get what I'm being asked to do. And there's like some set of tools that I use to easily implement that. Like mm -hmm. that, that to me is the ideal relationship. So consu consumer driven instead of producer driven, and then also includes sort of this host of other functionality around data that you don't find in sort of traditional APIs. Makes, makes total sense. We're getting a handful of questions. <laughs> Looks like Adam Cheer, who I remember meeting a while back. Hey, Adam, thanks for hopping on. And Veronica Durgan, another person that really enjoy catching up with whenever we run into each other at Snowflake Summit or Data Vault Conference, whatever it may be. Uh, looks like Adam's asking about uh, during the work at Convoy, is there an industry-wide standardization of an API on basically an industry data contract? What are your thoughts on that? Have you seen this? So funnily enough, this is something that just got announced a few days ago. Um, Did they steal your idea, basically? This is this was not this was not my idea. This happened uh, to totally separately. But um, uh, Convoy, uh, Uber Freight, and JB Hunt mm -hmm. are basically collaborating together to form a, an industry-wide um, data specification, okay. um, which is which is super exciting. And I and I think that um, uh, we're we're freight is a field where that type of standardization is ripe because mm -hmm. you have many different types of vendors. You have like TMS systems, you have um, marketplaces, you have freight brokers, uh, Convoy sort of falls into a couple of those categories and we all need to communicate and we're, we're basically communicating with around the same set of objects, 
right? You've got facilities, you've got shippers, you've got shipments. There's a really important metrics, like whether or not a shipment is on time. So all, all the data is like, is actually pretty, is actually pretty standardized. And by settling on some contract, uh, it actually becomes like far easier for all of these tools to, to communicate and for us work, to work together um, more, more effectively. So makes total sense. Veronica is asking on how you incentivize SEs or anybody who's dealing with the data to fix data quality issues, as you described, like one shipment being associated with two shippers. Uh, any trick or thoughts there? Yeah. So this sort of gets into, and we can we can go deeper here, you know, if you want, but it, it goes into sort of the, the actual technical implementation of these contracts. Mm. Um, uh, a lot of the, so this is sort of my personal belief is that people want to do the right thing, generally speaking. If you've got a software engineer and they understand that someone's taking a, like a, a production dependency on their data and they understand that that production dependency is like super important and they understand, you know, if, if something fails that they need to look into it, most software engineers are not going to say, hey, screw you. Um, the company's pricing model that generates $100 million a year is like of no concern to me. Like that's just, just in my experience, it does not happen very often. Um, what those teams need is a few things. The, the first thing that they need is context. So, mm -hmm. and, and awareness, right? They, they have to be aware of like, how is this data actually being used? Where is it being used? How, how is it being transformed? What, what is the expectation of them? That's, that's sort of no, number one, which oftentimes they don't get, right? You have some, if something fails downstream, you get a data person running, going, oh, 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 you, you broke me, you broke me. And they're like, what the heck? Like, I never agreed. <laughs> that like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stop working on what i'm working on now to solve this issue i didn't even know was was gonna happen um the second thing is there has to be processes and and tools in place to make that ownership very simple it has to fit into an existing workflow right mm -hmm. ideally it should use like github if you're mm -hmm. uh, we use um we have a, a you know a, we use a protobuf as a schema serialization framework at convoy we use kafka uh, quite 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 frequently um as our uh, streaming system. So if, if there's tools um, like SDKs and things like that, that sort of fall into this spectrum of, uh, into all those like normal workflows, then it becomes like quite, quite easy and, and quite straightforward. And then the other thing is there needs to be some um, pretty simplistic way of actually taking action on the failures when they do happen. Um, mm -hmm. If you have like an error that occurs and it requires days of trying to dig into, okay, well, how, how do I reproduce this? How do I figure out what the root cause is? Then you're, you're adding work. This is, you know, so something I find is a lot of the data consumers have usually done a lot of that work already. So there might be a notebook somewhere that if a failure happens, they'll run it to go figure out like, oh, was it because of like this thing that failed or was it because of like this other issue that happened? So being able to package those types of like run books into the contract, like, if you see this error, go do go do this thing. It's just about making the process like much easier on the software engineers to actually like take take ownership of and, and manage and clearly communicate expectations. Yep. So basically, it's helping enforce a workflow that is complementary to making sure that people are collaborating. We got another question around comparing data contracts with data catalogs. Someone's saying they see data contracts be more detailed than just a data catalog, which I certainly agree with. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Chad, Satish? Yeah, yeah, um, Satish, if you if you have any thoughts, feel feel free. I don't I don't want to dominate. <laughs> uh, no, no. Um, first thing I see that both are different things, two different things in my in my mind. Uh, you know, data cataloging is 
basically understanding how your systems, how your data is all connected, you know, all the, the lineage, the descriptions, the definitions, and all that sort of things. Uh, whereas data contract, what I'm, you know, learning here is it's essentially a contract between two parties. Uh, here in this case, the consumers and the producers, and you want to make sure that um, you keep that contract for the duration of that, uh, you know, the life cycle of that data. So uh, that's that's what I think. Those are two different things. Yeah, I, I would. I'm inclined to agree with you. I mm -hmm. think that a contract. Uh, sorry, I think that a catalog is a natural complement to mm -hmm. to contracts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, if you if you have contracts set up in your company and you know, you, you obviously would want to discover, like, what are the contracts that already exist? Um, mm -hmm. What is the schema of this contract? Where does the data actually manifest in your uh, data warehouse? Like, what, what is the table? Mm -hmm. um, what, what are the associated SLAs? Are those SLAs actually being met, right? These are all things that you can socialize in a contract to make. I, I, see, I see catalogs as, a, as discovery tools. Yeah. And so it, as a mechanism to discover contracts, I think catalogs are, are, are great, but they're not the actual like mechanism that you use to enforce uh, or implement. Yep. Very complimentary with yeah. how those two work. I mean, discovery. The day you need both. Yeah. yeah. You need both. yeah. Definitely. Makes sense. You know, I feel like as we think about a super large enterprise, super big company, or at least a very data centric company, uh, whether that's Convoy or, you know, Fortune 1000, you're starting to hear more about data mesh as a topic. And I think a, a, this is something we've talked about in the past. We had uh, Kent and Matt Florian on, who I'm sure you you know both of them, Chad. Yep. Uh, we're talking about data modeling, data mesh. How do you feel data contracts relate to uh, data mesh? Because I, I would think it's pretty critical as you start to kind of branch out and have all these different people dealing with data and the infrastructure makes it so accessible, you, you need a way to enforce these things. So. Yeah, exactly. I, I think um, I'm, I, I, I won't, I won't take a hard stance and say that it's not possible to do data mesh without contracts, but I think it would be pretty challenging. Yep. Um, the, like the, the whole principle, right. Is it like, like, like it's very similar, you know, it's microservices for data yep. and part of that, part of this like conceptual microservice is what is being generated from the production system. That's part of the contract. Uh, that's, that's, that's part of the data product. And um, yeah, you, I think you need APIs in that, in that universe. Um, and so if there's, if there's not a mechanism for implementing those, for enforcing them, for, uh, getting into the CI/CD workflow for doing versioning and sort of all of the traditional, you know, software engineering best practices, but applied to data, I think you're going to have a really hard time um, actually implementing data mesh. My, I, I sort of see it um, somewhat similar to the 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 uh, the whole transition to agile that we made mm. as a as an industry, like ten, you know, a decade ago or however long ago it was, where conceptually agile makes a ton of sense. But when you start getting into the nitty gritty details of like, how do you actually implement Agile at some company? And, and more importantly, how do you implement Agile in a way where if the main person driving that implementation leaves, that it continues organically on its own? I think that's when you start need to, you need to start talking about technology, um, right? You, you need things like GitHub, you need some project management tool like Jira, 
like like you like you need software that actually facilitates this transition, and that that's kind of how I think about data mesh and data contracts. And some of the principles that you were talking uh, in the context of data con contracts directly apply in data mesh. Like mm. you know, when you mentioned, you know, some engineers who are working on the data, but they don't really understand how it's being used. Uh, and that's one of the principles of data mesh where, you know, the domain uh, experts are going to actually, you, you know, build these uh, data sets, right? Because they understand the data uh, much better than anybody. Uh, but then when they build these data sets, now they have to publish it as a product. But if you are publishing something as a product, then the contract comes into play, right? right? Because you want to make sure that whatever you're publishing is at the highest quality and it adheres to certain standards and it never breaks and all of that. So there is a very strong relationship here, I see, between these two. Yeah, it feels like data contracts is the step in order to get to data mesh yeah. because you know the whole ideal state is you've got this centralized data team that's producing a foundational layer that that's then being disseminated across other departments or you know, business users who have a better understanding of the business rules for that data. Yeah. And then they want to leverage that foundational data layer to go off and extend from it. But to get to that point in the first place, you need that collaboration. You need it. You need some type of contract between that, what we would call a consumer, the department, the departmental user and that centralized data team. And so, you know, perhaps that's one of the bottlenecks. I think, I think actually getting a data mesh out, and fully executed properly is pretty difficult, but certainly something that we're really excited about here at Coalesce and helping companies evolve into. But there is a lot of collaboration that takes place. There's a lot of communication that needs to happen between the consumers and the producers and making sure that that's done in a way that's properly enforced, properly governed. And I like what you say about really being consumer centric here. And it's that the, the focus is on the consumer to start as to what they're actually looking for. Usually we see that sometimes those consumers don't know exactly what it is that they want. They're trying to figure out what they want. So you go through these iterations to get to that point. Uh, do you agree with that, Chad? That's, that's something that, you know, as you've kind of gone through this process that the consumers, you know, at times they have an idea of what they want, but it takes, it takes a bit of time to get there in the first place as well. I do. I, I completely agree. So something, um, one, one of my hypotheses, and this is something we've seen play out at Convoy, is that I, I think that there's actually two states to, the, in, in the data industry today, mm -hmm. one of the problems is that we've basically combined dev and prod into, in, into a single environment. Maybe maybe there are some folks that are running DVT or they're running a Coalesce and they, they, they do have sort of a dev environment for the data or whatever. But I, I mean, like, generally speaking, it's it's like you have you have some data that's very experimental. You have, uh, you know, replications, you have dumps from third parties. And this is usually all part of the same pipeline. And, and you have um, data products at the end of that pipeline where you might have, like I mentioned before, you might have. Um, a dashboard, like some table that feeds into a dashboard and nobody's looked at it in like four weeks and it's, or, or like six months and it's super stale. But right next to that, you, you might also have like a, a, a critical uh, machine learning training set, right? It's all, it's all part of the same system. Yeah. And, and so what, what my um, 
my, my sort of hypothesis is, and, and Doug, um, Doug asked a question, which, which yeah. I saw, and I, I think we can kind of maybe tie some of these answers together, is that I think contracts are, should be limited to the data products in your data ecosystem that are driving business value. And, and, and that does two things. Number one, it says data consumer, you're responsible. You still go through the same iteration phase that you've always gone through right? Like you're sort of digging through the data, you're doing your experimentation, you're doing your iteration, you're maybe even pushing something into production. If it's like a machine learning model or something like that, you're seeing what happens, you're validating like, okay, does the, does, does the data match what I actually expect? And once you get to a point where that data set needs to be production grade, that is where you go through the process of asking for the contract. So like, okay, these five columns, I know that I need these, I know exactly what the semantics need to look like and I need it to be enforced upstream. Mm -hmm. And that also creates the incentive for the producer to take action as well, because you have a very clear use case that's connected to, to business value, right? You're not saying, oh, I want a contract on this, like I, I want it on my entire data ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? Which is a ton of work. And it goes back to the, the awareness thing that I mentioned before. It's not sort of clear why a, a contract is actually meaningful here. But if you can say, Okay, here's a, like I said, let's, we'll just go with the training set for the machine learning model. Here's my training set for this model. It feeds into my machine learning pricing model. And that pricing model is responsible for $100 million flowing through it per year. And today we're, you know, 40% of that data is null and we have to throw it out, meaning we're not training the data on reality anymore. And I know that these six or seven columns, if they were enforced from a production system, would yield a much higher quality model and, and hence dollars, that, that, that is a much stronger sell to go to the software engineering team upstream than just saying like, hey, I, I need this like generic data quality, you know, in system all, all, everywhere. Yep, that makes total sense. Hopefully that answers the question too, Doug. I, I saw that you're asking around the general ideas of all this, so love to see that. Uh, how about data modeling, Chad? I mean, when it comes to data modeling in general, I know that in the past you've been you've been outspoken or at least pub publicizing and posting about data modeling. And from my impression, it sounded like something that you and the team at Convoy did later in the journey as you were going through the data process instead of the initial parts. Is that accurate? And, and it is. It is. What's learning through that? So. Um... This is this is sort of the, the 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 infinite challenge of data modeling is that there's no real incentive to do it when you are an, an early stage business. You yep. know, like you're just trying to find product market fit. Yep. The software engineers are moving quickly. Mm -hmm. If there is data that's needed, it's usually for one of these dashboarding use cases, right? Like your CEO wants to know um, what's our churn rate, and you don't really need great data modeling for that. Like mm -hmm. you just need to plug into some transactional database. Maybe you go pull out of Postgres, you pipe that into Tableau or like some other dashboarding tool and boom, you're done. Right. 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 Um, the problem is that foundation does not scale very well, obviously like we're all data people. We understand that. Yep. Um, but, but like it, it does become the foundation anyways, right? New, new, new teams, new people join the company new product teams begin to emerge. They start having additional data asks. We never really thoughtfully create sort of an enterprise data model. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually you're just left with, with this chaos. 
But that was the state that Convoy was in as well. Mm. And um, what I was trying to figure out, like we, I think everyone on the data engineering side understood that the way we succeed, the way we win as a data infrastructure organization is to have a better data model. Mm-hmm. But the question was, how do we actually do that? Like, how, how, do we, how do we motivate teams to do that at scale? Yeah. And this kind of ties back, well, it completely ties back to the, the conversation around contracts. Mm-hmm. Because what I realized was um, in the same way, like the, the way that code is scalable, like the way that you just don't run into these massive bottlenecks that break, that, that cause the entire company to shut down um, when you're, you know, building features or something like that. Or maybe maybe you do experience those, but they come later. Is it is it you do have more iterative governance over time, right? GitHub, as much as we don't really think about it this way, is a governance system, mm-hmm. right? And most teams are implementing GitHub from like your very your very is the first engineer that you hire, and there's some level of standard, uh, whether we like it or not. Like it could just be very basic code review. Like hey, if you're pushing something in production. Right. Like me, the chief architect actually has to be included on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have anything like that in data. Like there, there's no form of sort of, of, of iteration. There's no versioning that you can't look at a history. Yep. You just kind of have a blob. And, and the only real option for most data teams is to go with like the huge refactor, right? Mm-hmm. We got to change everything. We got to do it all at once. And I think that that probably worked, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago when you have, you know, companies that are now like legacy and you can mobilize the entire business behind this data effort, but that, that doesn't really work now. Um, teams, they want, they want business value. They want like, show me the ROI and then we're moving quickly. So, so the way that, that we thought about it is if we can use the contract and tie it to business value and, and, and have these contracts in place and you can iterate over them by making additional requests, right? I could say, for example, I just I want my contract to start with these like six properties, but now maybe as a business intelligence engineer or an analytics engineer, I think that the ideal data model is to like I need to add you know two foreign keys to this schema, then I can request that, and because I've already established this connection with the software engineer, they understand the value of the data, they know how it's being used, I have like great collaboration with them. It's much more likely that they're actually going to do the work as just any other feature request. But if I don't establish that connection, it's tremendously hard to, to do that. So that, that's sort of how I think about it, is that it needs to actually be a, an iterative collaboration um, with, with the producer team. And if you can do that effectively, then you'll start to see like healthy data models begin to emerge over time. That makes sense, especially at the beginning stages of a journey, because I agree, you know, when you're, when you're just starting out as a business, at least depending on the business, you, you find companies that just are leveraging the fact that they have access to data and want to get quick answers and not thinking about what this is going to look like mm-hmm. two years from now, three years from now. And then you find yourself in this huge mess because all the pipelines that were built really weren't factoring in the growth that you inevitably want to experience as an organization. Right. And so we see this all the time. It's crazy to me hearing about uh, you know, organizations that are treating their dev and prod instance as the same instance. Like as we work with companies, usually typically mature analytics companies at coalesce, commonly enterprise businesses. Uh, it's such an important delineation to make sure that you've got your dev, your QA, your prod. But it's there's a, there's a gap between you know the whole market kind of maturing as 
things like Snowflake have opened up access to data infrastructure to people who historically have just not had access to it and don't understand the common data warehousing principles that are so important. Um, and it's a beautiful thing for sure, but it's a very important thing that we start to reel this in and do things properly as we go about implementing large scale data warehouses, data products, you know, working with consumers and, and, and making sure producers are on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and maybe just to add a little something onto that, like I, I think, at, I think it really all comes down to incentives and consequences. Yeah. And one of the challenges, especially in the tech industry for a long time, um, or at least in sort of the analytics age, maybe as I'll call yeah. it, the, 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 the consequences have not been particularly dire for bad data models. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, our data model is bad. And uh, it means like worst case scenario where some dashboard is broken. It's like, all right, who cares? <laughs> right? Like, like it doesn't, it doesn't like shut down operations. It doesn't, it, like, it, it doesn't like, maybe it costs it costs the business money in some like esoteric sense like okay we we've maybe we'll potentially make some wrong decisions or something like that but this is a really challenging thing to quantify um but i think that that's changing yeah you know? definitely and, and it's getting it we're, we're starting to get to the point where companies can point to at least a few data sets and say this thing makes money a great example is like usage-based pricing, right? Yeah. A lot of this computation happens in, in your warehouse, happens in Snowflake or happens in Databricks or, or what have you. And if that's wrong, you, you, you're in for a bad time, right? Like that's, like, that's, that's, that's not good. Um, and so as, as I think the use cases of data start to become a lot more tied to business operations and to the, to the bottom line of the company, you now you actually have the incentive and the consequence to, to think about like the data model, the SLA, the ownership. And, uh, and, and I, and I think that's the, the a big transition we're going to start to see over the next like five years or so. I, I feel like in a, in a, during the times of a economic boom, it's a lot less focused on when you're thinking about actually driving value out of your data. And, you know, when companies are raising insane amounts of capital, it's not as big of a deal, but we're seeing that change pretty quickly too, where people need to be a lot more mature uh, and a lot more economical when it comes to actually being a data practice, right. being a data operation. That's 100% uh, true. Like I was just, you know, kind of always wondered, when did we stop modeling? Like when did we stop data modeling? I mean, I, if we go back and think about it, I think when the data lake concept came up, you know, when we have this, like big data systems and hey, dump everything here into the data lake. And mm -hmm. that was like seen as a silver bullet for this. And then people just stopped modeling. I mean, they thought, okay, we have all the data here, just go start building stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so crazy. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I'm sort of pe preaching to the crier with this, with you guys and, and the audience that's on the call now, but um, you would be shocked how many data folks um, don't know anything about data modeling. Like they, mm -hmm. they don't know who Bill Inman is. They don't know who like Kimball <laughs> is. Like it, it's, it sounds absurd, you know, but I, like, I, I promise if you, if you go to a lot of these, these companies and you, you actually ask them like, you know, do, like, do you, like, do you know, you know what a what, star schema is? <laughs> what, yeah. What is, what is a star, yeah, what is a star schema? schema? 
what what is what is a data warehouse like what what is sort of the some of the differentiating features of a data oh, warehouse God. like they they're they're, they're not going to be able to tell you and this isn't this isn't me trying to throw these people under the bus and say like okay well they're just they're all stupid and they have bad <laughs> training and all those other things it's it's just that the the incentive to learn this has it hasn't been there yeah um, businesses haven't required it they haven't rewarded teams that that heavily focused on it like they've like like you you were just saying the when you have this sort of boom of technology and you're hiring right like, like crazy yep. and it's you've got this slogan like data is the new oil mm-hmm. then it, the the goal is to spin up as many pipelines as, as quick as you possibly can as many dashboards as quick as you possibly can who cares about governance who cares about sort of trustability who who tra- who cares about quality because at the end of the day like we can we can just throw more bodies at the problem yep. and now we can't do that anymore <laughs> like and and you're starting to see a lot of data teams fall away like they're getting yeah. slashed left right and center yep. and it's exactly because the business is looking at a balance sheet and saying okay i can either fire a, a software engineer who works on a product team that ma- maintains something that makes money or i can fire someone who works in data that spent you know the last two years doing what exactly like how yeah making a bigger cost center for for our business you know yeah, with creating a bigger, a bigger cost center and yeah. so I, I think i think the like the, the next the the, the next um the the next the, uh, the next part of the life cycle for data teams at tech companies mm-hmm. is to t- is to like embody the ethos of the software engineer which is like don't work on things that don't add business value like if you can't point to a dollar sign from what you have done, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Deprioritize de- 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 it, right? I, you know, I'm I I work with with so many software engineers in my life, and I I work with very few teams that you could just go to and say, hey, can you go and build this? And they're not going to have some questions for you, right? right? They're not going to say, why is this useful? Who who is the customer? Is is it worth all the effort that we're putting into it? H- how do we think about scalability? Like those are requirements before they even begin working. But that's we haven't really adopted that culture in data yet. I think. It, it's it's so funny hearing this because, you know, there's a huge delineation between the startup space, the pre-IPO tech companies, and then the larger businesses of the world or America, whether it's an insurance company, a financial services company, like a bank, whether it's a healthcare company, they, they, and they both have some pros and some cons. So in the, in the startup space, it's cool because People want to get access to data. They, they want to get answers quickly, but they forget about the actual governance, the data modeling components. They don't even know what a data warehouse is. A lot of the people, like you're saying, yeah. Chad, um, and during a market that that's growing super quickly, that's acceptable because you can just continue to hire people and try to manage these problems through resources. Uh, whereas the larger businesses or traditional enterprise, they they have more of these principles when it comes to data warehousing you know what a traditional star scheme is making sure that you got some level of documentation those types of aspects but they're so much slower to move and so it takes a lot longer for them to get get to answers they'll take a year long you know to build out their first project and so what what we're seeing on the coalesce side is these spaces are starting to converge which is great you're starting to see the same principles of how do we drive business outcomes out of our data from that was learned from the larger companies that have been around for a while, but also how do we do that quickly, similar to how a startup operates and combine these two as we want to be more efficient. We want to be more 
accelerated with our development. We want to manage things at scale a lot more elegantly. And I think Chad, you're you're on the forefront of this with this concept of data contracts. You know, being able to enforce some of these items in a way that prevents the future startups of the world from falling into the same trap over and over again because they simply can't afford to at this point. Um, and so, it's a yeah, it's a super exciting, super interesting concept. And I, I think we're watching the analytics space mature as we speak, you know, in front of our, our own eyes. And, uh, you know, a lot of that came from the growth of things like data lakes or things like the cloud that gave people infinite access to data. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're just maturing as we go. We're scaling up as we go. We're getting smarter about how we actually go about driving in an analytics operation. So, well, we got people in the audience still. Any other questions as we got Chad that people are interested in? Um, in the meantime, we'll let the comments trickle in. I think one one area that we haven't talked about at all is, is and you touched on a little bit here, is the concept of real time. Uh, you know, I was at an event with Ben Robijan, Sarah Krasnick a few weeks ago. That's where I met uh, John Coutte earlier, who was commenting. Uh, any thoughts on real time, Chad? Is that, is that something that you think is... Uh, inevitable next step in 2023 do you think we're a little bit of the ways out what's what's i i I do so real time is one of those things where um a lot of companies have not been able to take advantage of it because the infrastructure just wasn't there um or it was extremely costly to to implement right you needed to essentially you know have like full kafka infrastructure and uh that that's that's like a pretty challenging thing and um but I, but I think that it's getting cheaper to do things like that. Um, Estuary, you know, Dave, Dave Yaffe is a friend. And I think that um, the way that they're thinking about uh, doing like real-time ETL is, is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the value of, of, of sort of real-time to me, and a lot of this, you know, not to tie everything back to contracts here, but it is a, a pretty <laughs> meaningful use case, where like, I think that if you're, it, like, I, I think that it's really, it's really hard to handle uh, data quality use cases in batch. Like you can obviously do it, but it's not really what you want to do in most cases um, because you want to detect the issues when they happen, just like you would with any other bug, right? Like, okay, we're seeing like your JavaScript errors come in for some feature flag. Like let's go figure that out and solve it. And you don't want to wait, you know, until the next day and the errors are starting to pile up and now you have like a broken machine learning model or something. and. Um, that's that, that that that's pretty problematic. So there's a there's a bunch of like quality centric use cases where I think real time is 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 very meaningful. And I think the other thing that real time does is it it, it, just, it just facilitates like more granular decision making. Um, like machine learning models, there's mm-hmm. so many of them that if they're if they're not backed by like real time data, it's not even going to function effectively. Um, and yeah, I think real-time analytics is also interesting. I mean, I haven't gotten um, too too deep into that, but I think that the bigger use case is sort of um, real-time, like transform data for the purpose of some like you know operational decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, we saw something new happen, or something different happened. Something broke. Something didn't break. Like some some set of uh, of uh, of like criterion has been achieved, and we want to take action over it. I think. Maybe the way to summarize a lot of this stuff is that I, I think that what re- real time facilitates is it increases the actionability of the data. 
And as we move towards this world that we've been talking about, you know, for the last 10, 20 minutes or so, where, where businesses really need to tie data to value and dollar signs, like I think that's that actionability mm -hmm. is one of the best ways to do it. One thing I noticed with real time is um, in the past, at least, uh, yeah, infrastructure wasn't there, but one of the other challenges were people identifying use cases. Like, you know, yeah. you can't make everything because people thought just make everything real time. I don't think that's required. But then the challenge is, okay, what, what is that business value that you're talking about? Which use case makes sense, you know? Uh, and again, it goes back to the collaboration, understanding, and all of that. But that's one of the problems that I've seen in the past where people, even though they had the infrastructure, even though they had people, they really did not understand what was that use case that provides the most value uh, for real time. Yeah, and part of this is is like it it also comes back to the the whole like we need, we need to be better at thinking as software engineers. And as as soft, like if you're a software engineer, the first thing that you think of when you're faced with a new use case is what are my requirements, right? That's like the first thing you ask. What is the goal, the outcome I actually want to achieve? Like what's the optimal outcome? And then and then documenting those requirements and translating the requirements to technology, and then deciding at some point, okay, it, like for this particular thing, um, it would be great if it was happening in real time, so we could make X Y Z decision. But yeah. that infrastructure is not available right now, so here's how we would work around it, right? Like that needs to be the thought process. Whereas I, I think um, because data teams often are not thinking like product teams, then we sort of go the inverse direction, right? Which yeah. is either let's try to apply this technology, as you said, anywhere it could possibly fit, um, <laughs> and that doesn't really make any sense. Or it's starting from the technology that we have and then building our use cases from that. Right. Okay. Well, we have a batch system. We're, you know, we're we we have like DAGs to handle orchestration. So, what can we do with that? Like, yeah. I think that that's that's not the way that that a product team would approach like a meaningful problem. So funny. I'm watching the comments. David was asking about definition of real time. Stuart's response was, "Well, how real time do you need it? That's the question to start with." Exactly. I totally agree. It's like, what's the use case? What, what are we trying to accomplish here? It's a question that unfortunately data teams don't ask enough, uh, you know, of the producers or sorry, the consumers before they actually start producing. And sometimes people just want to do cool stuff. What they feel is cool on the data side. They don't have the, the, the direct connection to the business and what they're trying to accomplish from the data. So, and I hope that the same thing goes with data contracts. It's not that you have to do data contracts on everything, right? I mean, you got to understand what is the most valuable data and then you know how it's used and how important it is um, then do those contracts on top of this um, yeah. Yeah. yeah the advice i give is if if you if you don't know when you would use data contracts you probably don't need data contracts <laughs> like the the, the 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 people who or you don't understand it right or, or you don't understand it right that, yeah. that, that's that's sort of the other option is you don't yeah. understand it. but but what, what i found is um a lot of the folks that i've talked to about data contracts like they have an extremely clear like they're like okay you know, like we are serving some data out to a customer it has to be right here's the places where it's broken in the past i need contracts around like this 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 and this like it's 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 very clear so i i think once you um, understand the technology and how you implement and how you scale and sort of how you drive the culture. Like that is one side of the problem. But yeah. the, if, if there's not like, it, and by the way, this doesn't just go for contracts. Like I think it goes for data quality in general, right? Like if, if, if I, I think, I think one, one 
one sort of wrong um, perspective that I've heard is like, well, you know, we should apply data quality to everything that's in our data warehouse, right? Everything needs quality. Everything needs monitoring. Everything needs alerting. It's like, well, I don't, I don't think that's really true. Like, I, I think that there's a very, very small percentage of, of, of everything that is meaningful enough to have all the guardrails around data quality around it. And each additional guardrail, guardrail should add some amount of incremental business value. And, and if it doesn't, then it's probably not the right investment to make. Yep. That makes sense. One other thing that I was just thinking about as you were talking, Chad, was around, you know, appropriating software engineering best practices. I'm really excited for uh, our next guest on this in January. So a little teaser there because it's very much around the fundamentals of data engineering. And, you know, just as much as I would say an enterprise needs to appropriate some of these software engineering best practices, I would also argue that startups need to start to wisen up around just in general data practices, best practices when it comes to data, data warehousing. It's a big reason why we even got to this point in the first place is that people don't know what a star scheme is. People don't know what a data warehouse actually is to its fullest extent. And so again, it's that delineation of kind of the, the more traditional businesses of the world and then the startups and then us now converging into the space where, you know, you got the right concepts as you go into this development but also you're evolving the way that you do things at the same time and so that's something i'm i'm also super excited about seeing as the market unfolds and continues to evolve and grow yeah yeah i i I think i think a lot of it just you know i think the theme of this um of this conversation is really requirements Right. Yeah. What, what, what do you what do you need and why do you need it and, and why is it meaningful and why is it important to, to learn about? I think that um, what a lot of startup companies lack is they have a pretty significant amount of vision when mm-hmm. it comes to the product. They're very forward thinking in that way. Mm-hmm. And usually when startups, you know, when development begins, the initial crop of engineers is thinking at least a little bit about scalability. Right. There's like some thought put into okay, do we, you know, are we going to be on AWS? Are we going to use Kubernetes? Are we like, how how are we going to think about CICD, right? All of these are are part of the initial design uh, process of of, of the actual startup. But something that you you don't hear considered very frequently is like the data model is how are we going to think about data? And part of that, I think, is because um, a lot of businesses just don't have a plan for their data. in the same way they, they have they have a plan for their 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 sort of features in their product. Right. And that makes a lot of sense if if the data is not seen as part of the product, right? If it's just sort of this this outcome that we use to track things every now and then. Right. But like like I like I've sort of been saying a few times over, as, as the data becomes more meaningful, as as it becomes a mechanism for um, you know, like activating customers or or making money. Uh, I, I think that I think that that trend will start to change. Like thinking of your data model and your data warehouse design will become just as important as thinking about like the scalability of your. It's it's inevitable, I would say. I mean, I think it's going to be it's going to be key to the whole industry continuing to grow. So people have projects that are actually successful that are actually delivering value to the business, and I think that's where the biggest opportunity lies right now is how do companies go about doing this strategically the same way they would if they were running a company or building a product for consumers in a different space than data and applying these general principles, these general business ideas to how you approach data 
is uh yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of ground to cover but there's also so much so much fun to to have in the future so it's uh yeah it's exciting times definitely yeah i'm i'm very excited i i think that um as as hyped as it was mm. machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to like fundamentally change i think how we uh, how, how the industry values data yeah i think like ml and ai is probably going to become table stakes for like a lot of new businesses maybe not all of them but essentially a significant amount and in that world where we're where we're making where some where some automated system is making a decision yeah. especially when that decision ha like impacts someone in in real life like in the in the medical space in the freight space right anything in the automotive space then that that is where like the, the, the data is going to become critical. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there starts to become regulation around, um, you know, how, in fact, I'm almost, I'm almost positive that it's coming. Um, like how, how, how we treat data that's feeding into these models, how we audit, how, how we, you know, that, uh, that's stuff. the, that's the biggest thing, you know, when it comes to AI and ML, the biggest bottleneck we've seen is the actual, data governance associated with the, the data prep that's required to make sure that the decisions that are being made, whether it's by a human or a machine, is being made off of data that's been persisted, is accurate. Mm -hmm. And that's usually where companies are struggling right now. I think as we get through this, you know, this is you know, one of the biggest reasons why we're so passionate about our mission at Coalesce is to help make that data prep process as efficient as possible and get to that point where you've got the appropriate lineage, appropriate documentation. So then you can get to this new era of AI and ML and being able to actually make decisions autonomously because you know the data is accurate, it's secure, it's exactly what you need. And in order to get to that, for, to, to get to that point where the data prep is appropriate, takes a lot of collaboration, takes data contracts, whether that's, whether that's through technology or just through simple communication between business and and the and the data teams or the producers and the consumers but ideally we have some way to enforce this through what you're describing chad and something that i think is 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 critical for us to get to that next stage so that way we're not seeing decisions that are made from a, a machine or an ai and ml model that that causes a bunch of problems because the data in the first place was inaccurate so Cool. Chad, this is an amazing conversation. I'm so glad to to have you on Coffee with Colas. Uh, it's been it's been great. I'm super excited to see what we talk about comes into reality in 2023. Uh, so everybody that's tuned in, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, hopefully the conversation was was productive and informative. Certainly was for me. And I love the topic of data contracts too, Chad. I think you're gonna you're gonna become famous for this, or at least more famous than you already are. So, uh, thank you yeah. so much, and thank you, Satish, too. Yeah, and Chad, you may come back again with data contracts in the future. That's you're right. Version two. Anytime, <laughs> anytime you'll have me. I'm happy to. Uh, I'm happy to talk about this until my uh, my face goes blue. So thanks, <laughs> I, I being on. It was fun. Awesome. Cool. That was good. Thanks, everybody.